For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, the latest on how Prop 123 is changing Arizona education. Meet novelist Adrian Selt, the Pima County Public Library's current writer-in-residence. Find out how comic book creator John Proudstar is giving Native American superheroes a chance to fly. And a conversation with a former U of A student who's swimming for his home nation of South Africa in the Summer Olympic Games. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Last May, Arizona voters decided to increase the amount of education funding in Arizona with Prop 123. Here to tell us the latest about how this proposition has been implemented is Christopher Conover. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Thank you. So remind us what Prop 123 was designed to do. Prop 123 increases the amount of money taken out of the state land trust each year for 10 years, and that money then goes to the various funds that the state land trust funds, the vast majority of which are education. How was this uh, package sold to the voters? It was sold as a way to increase education funding and settle an ongoing lawsuit on education funding without increasing taxes. So are the teachers getting the raises that they were promised from this money? Most districts are using this money for teacher raises, and the amount of the raise varies from district to district. Some hay was made in the Tucson Unified School District. Prop 123 is only giving teachers a $700 raise. However, the TUSD board just before the Prop 123 vote approved a larger raise for teachers So they're actually getting somewhere in the neighborhood of about a $2,000 raise when you figure in those two. But district to district, it varies a little bit. Most districts are giving teachers raises with that money. Based on how this money has been spread around so far, does it mean that the teachers can expect more in the next 10 years? It is, as you said, a a 10-year process. So yes, there will be more teacher raises, at least that's what's expected. But I think we'll also begin to see the money used for other things uh, in the classroom over that 10 years. 10 years is a long time. We've all pretty much heard stories about teachers who have had to spend money out of their own pockets to provide for necessities in the classroom. Do you think Prop 123 is going to be addressing that issue? Again, it's going to be a district-by-district decision, but for example, the Vail School District here in southern Arizona, they're using some of the Prop 123 money this year for new computers in the classrooms for teachers so that they can download digital lesson plans and things like that. So that could help a teacher out and wouldn't have to use their home computer and the ink and the paper and things like that at home. They could do it in the classroom. This year, as we've said, most of the money is going to raises. Over time, we'll have to see where else the money goes to. Uh, There's also been talk about legal challenges to the law. Um, Are these things being settled, or are they still outstanding? There was a challenge uh, put to Prop 123 as soon as ballots were finished being cast. They're actually still counting ballots, and there was a federal lawsuit filed by a man in Phoenix that lawsuit, I went and checked, is still going. Uh, it's 
going along very quietly, very slowly, the way lawsuits go. He contends that the state land trust, the land in that, was given to Arizona at statehood by the federal government for the support of what is called the common schools, what we now call public schools, and changing the distribution violates that, and also the fact that things besides public schools are funded through the state land trust and also got a bump. Prisons uh, get a little bit of money. Maintenance of the state capitol complex gets a little bit of money. State hospitals get a little bit of money. So this was a case of a rising tide lifted all boats. Everybody got a little bit of money. This is a lawsuit that's probably going to go on for a little while. So I'm sure we'll be hearing more about this story later in the year. Thank you, Christopher. In Adrian Seltz's online comic strip, Love Among the Lampreys, an assortment of desert animals, humpback whales, and dinosaurs ponder the meaning of existence and lay bare their all-too-human psyches. It's just one example of how Selt uses carefully chosen words to share her acute awareness of life's complexities. Her debut novel, The Daughters, was released last year to critical acclaim and earned a top spot on NPR's Best Fiction of the Year list. This summer finds Adrian Selt participating in a program at the Pima County Public Library as the Writer-in-Residence, where she meets with hopeful writers of all stripes each week in one-on-one sessions. I went to the Hemel Park Library on a swampy Friday afternoon to listen in. Every Tuesday from 10 to 12, I have office hours at the downtown main library, and every Friday I have office hours at the Himmel Park Library from 10 to 1. Everyone who comes in can sign up for a half-hour slot, and it usually helps to sign up ahead of time if possible because the slots do fill up very quickly. Are you seeing mostly older people, younger people, men, women? Is there any kind of demographic breakdown you can give of the people who have been taking advantage of this? I would say it has mostly been adults, probably 30s through 70s or 80s, and a pretty even split between men and women. Um, I would love it if some younger writers came in. I would be very open to that, too, but so far, not so much. From the time I've been here, you've had a steady stream of people who have been coming to sit with you and talk about their work. I don't know what I expected, but I kind of thought you'd be more like roaming and just sort of connecting, but it's not like that. There's There's a lot of writers in Tucson who want to talk. Absolutely, yeah. I Especially at Himmel Park on Fridays, it's been pretty much booked back to back and a lot of repeat customers, but people are very dedicated. I've had a lot of really high quality work that I've been privileged to, to see and get to connect with, and I, I have a great time with, with all of these writers. My name is Kate Hennessy, and I'm a teacher, aspiring writer on the side, and uh, I've really learned so much from Adrienne. She's my writing sensei, (laughs) my writing master guru, and um, you know, I bring her the very best that I can come up with myself, and then she always just, I mean, amazes me with with the, the really thoughtful and detailed criticism or critiques, feedback that she gives me, and it really helps me take it to the next level. What type of, of writing are you working on right now? Um, it's a novel. It takes place, part of it, during the Mexican Revolution and part of it now. And um, it's about a couple that is on vacation. They stumble upon a 
old mansion in a little town in Mexico and they fall in love with it. So that's where the story starts. <laughs> okay. And where it goes next, we can only imagine. I met a nice writer friend at the writer conference, Pima County, uh, in May, and I told her that she has to go see Adrian because she's also, we're kind of at the same point in our novel where you know, we've revised as much as we can, make sense of it ourselves, but we need an expert you know, that has been through the process and they're just talent and gift, you know, they're willing to share that, their time with other people who are learning. So I told her to come. <laughs> uh, one other quick question. Have you ever read Adrian's comic strip? I started to read it online and I'm fascinated. So I, I finished her novel and I bought it for my mother right away and other people as gifts. So I'm, I'm really interested to learn more about that side of her. Was working at the library in this capacity ever something that you imagined you would be doing? How did this come into your life? It was not something I imagined I would be doing. It was a complete surprise. The State Library actually reached out to me because they were piloting this program, Amy Ledden at the State Library, and I was delighted and like really excited to do it because I love the library. I'm just a huge super fan of the fact that it exists in the world. It's, I think, one of the best public resources there is. This was a really lovely opportunity to get out of my house and both my day job and my writing life and my cartoon drawing life are very focused around being alone at home. And this was something that lets me uh, reach into the community and actually give back and, and help other writers who are at the beginning of their journeys or just need somebody to look at their work and provide a second set of eyes because you really get lost in your own perspective and it just helps to have somebody, no matter what stage you're at, look and give their point of view on what you're doing and where it can get better. Did you have someone that was influential on you as a writer that you think you may be emulating in some way in, in your style of advice? Well, as a writer, I probably um, took a lot of influence just from my grandmother growing up because she was a, a real storyteller and was always uh, encouraging me to read and write. But in terms of a teacher, one of my professors in my MFA program in grad school, Peter Turchi, was really an inspiration in terms of how to be a, an excellent resource. He was, for instance, just really good at looking at any kind of writing, and like no matter what genre you were in, what type of story you were trying to write, if you were trying to be experimental or straightforward or character-driven or whatever, he could see it for what it was, even if it wasn't what he would do. And um, reach inside the story itself and advise you on how to make it a better version of what it was uh, without projecting himself onto it. And I think that that's really key to, to giving good advice to writers. That is something I wonder about is that um, when you look at a piece of fiction, you know what choices you would make and what would be the right choices for you as a writer. But how do you sort of filter that out in order to give someone advice without trying to turn them into Adrian Selt? it is very good advice to seriously interrogate the beginning of what you're writing because oftentimes, especially with a story, especially if you're a new writer, you begin before the story really needs to begin. You tend to be fleshing out the world and fleshing out who the people are and what their circumstances are. And a lot of that ends up being more for you than it does for the story or for the reader. How has this informed your view of Tucson as a writing scene? It's really inspiring. I love how warmly the community of writers has embraced this, uh, this opportunity. It was shocking to me the first time that the, every single um, slot 
on my Friday afternoon was filled, but it has stopped being surprising to me because this has really opened my eyes to the way that people need encouragement, but just a little bit of encouragement, and then they'll just like really run with it. So it has made me feel confident and happy about the Tucson writing community. I, I already loved it, but this has allowed me to have a more intimate look at what people are doing. It's always good to realize that people are smart and motivated out there, you know? I visited with writer-in-residence Adrian Selt at the Himmel Park Branch Library in Tucson. Her debut novel, The Daughters, was published by LiveWrite. From short stories to obituaries to giving thanks in prose, the Pima County Public Library is hosting a series of free writing workshops starting September 10th. They'll take place on Saturday afternoons at the Joel Valdez Library downtown. There's a link to the schedule and registration on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. It's been a long time since anyone could say that the mainstream comic book industry is aimed at children, as the newly released film adaptation of The Suicide Squad makes clear. The medium is a deceptively simple form of literature, and the best comics creators explore combustible social issues and mature themes. In the 1990s, a pair of Tucsonans, writer John Proudstar, whose own name is taken from comics, and illustrator Ryan Hunnis-Smith, created Tribal Force, an independent comic starring an all-Native American superhero team. It's still being talked about today. Bryn Baylor has the story. Yeah, this is the stuff that really gets me going. Uh, There's times I kind of forget, you know, the importance of Tribal Force and what it's about. And this music brings me back, you know, to what I need to be doing, the story and the book. Growing up, John Proudstar didn't have heroes who looked like him, so he created them. In doing so, he also created the nation's first comic book starring an all-Native American superhero team. Proudstar, who is of Yaqui, Latino, and Jewish heritage, explains. There's such a deficit for us having heroes. When you turn on the TV or open a magazine or a comic book or anything, and it's nothing but white heroes, it's daunting. It's, it's hard to relate to, to that. When he did see Native American characters, they were often stereotypes. Noble savages wearing feathers, war paint, and armed with mystical arrows or wild animal spirit guides. You know, it's hard not to say the white people, but that's who was doing it. You know, there was white publishers, and they didn't get it. They didn't understand the importance of superheroes for us. When a comic book did create a complex Native character, it typically wasn't for long. That was the case with a young, proud star's favorite character. In 1975, Thunderbird was introduced as a full-fledged member of the X-Men superhero team. He was an Apache character with a realistic storyline. He learned advanced combat skills as a Marine in the Vietnam War, and he hailed from an Indian reservation in Camp Verde, Arizona. Proud star remembers. I was so happy to see this native guy who looked like me. And then they killed him off four or five issues later, and I was heartbroken. You know, I think I was eight years old. Fast forward to the 1990s. Proudstar partnered with Ryan Hunna-Smith, whose own heritage is Chamoivian Navajo, 
to create tribal force. Today, Smith is a professional illustrator and educator. He says tribal force is still an important project. As Native people, we tend to get categorized into the Old West, and people tend to look at Native people as people that used to exist at one time. Well, we still do exist. We still have our cultures. We still have our traditions. But now it's part of this whole new contemporary world that we're a part of. Tribal Force stars a cadre of flawed Native characters who deal with ugly, real-world problems that Indian kids face today like high rates of alcoholism and domestic violence on Indian reservations. Proudstar didn't grow up on the res, but did counsel troubled youth offenders from the Pasquayaki and Tohono O'odham reservations. He says some tribal force stories are drawn from real life. There are tribes making progress, which is great, but there's still many, many tribes that are living in third world conditions. And that's my war. That's what I want to take on. Tribal force includes a hunk papa Sioux man struck mute by fetal alcohol syndrome. He transforms into the incredible Hulk-like character Little Bighorn. He protects Nita, a Latina Navajo child molestation survivor who becomes the goddess Earth. She has the power to command lava, rock, and fire. The first of two tribal force issues was published in 1996. In 2008, it became part of a traveling pop culture exhibition called Comic Art on Dijen. One stop was in Washington, D.C., at the National Museum of the American Indian. Show curator Tony Cheveria. Tribal Force was influential. One, it was creator-owned, independently published. It was Native artists producing something that is pop culture. And that's something that wasn't completely, you know, often done at that time. People either worked in types of souvenir art or fine art. In addition to wild sci-fi storylines, Tribal Force also includes factual details about individual tribes. As the characters learn more about their own tribal histories, their powers grow. Comic book readers learn along with them. The message is clear. Knowledge is power. Proudstar says he's been approached by larger comic book companies, but refuses to sell rights to the characters he created. The biggest problem I've had with publishing companies is that they don't want me to write about all the bad stuff. They always want to cauterize it, you know, and, uh, and they usually think, oh, well, we'll just offer them money, and that'll shut them up. I want Tribal Force to stand for something other than, oh, they're just Indian heroes. It's like, no, they're going to be Indian heroes that deal with Indian problems. He says these are uncomfortable stories, but they need to be told. People always want to know, how did you guys go from being this incredible race of warriors to where you are now, which is on the reservation with diabetes, child molestation, alcoholism, crime, and you do the forensics. <laughs> Unfortunately, all arrows point back to the government and the promises that were broken and the treaties that were broken. It becomes political whether you want it to or not. In November, Proudstar will appear at Indigenous Comic-Con, a native-themed pop culture convention in Albuquerque. The three-day event will celebrate comic books, graphic novels, film and TV shows, as well as video and tabletop games. The convention promoter is Lee Francis IV, CEO of Native Realities Press. He's also managing editor of Albuquerque-based Inc. Comics. Francis says Tribal Force really resonates with a native audience. We've been enamored with superheroes as Native people, Indigenous people, since time immemorial. These are our tricksters. These are our hero twins. These are the characters that have been factored into our stories, and I think we share that as humanity. Proudstar will promote Tribal Force at the convention and hopes to find an open-minded publisher for additional issues. 
Proudstar explains. I don't know if anyone's ever going to pick up Tribal Force. I get patted on the back a lot and they're like, oh, as soon as somebody picks it up, you're going to be a millionaire and they're going to make toys and shirts and video games and movies. And I'm like, well, you know, I struggle to pay my electricity bill and my phone bill. So that reality is not a reality for me. These days, Proudstar is in demand as a public speaker and actor, most often in independent short films like Running Deer, where he co-starred with Native American actor Boo Boo Stewart. Stewart had a recurring role in the Twilight series and also played the role of Warpath in the X-Men film Days of Future Past. In comics, Warpath is the younger brother of Proudstar's favorite hero, Thunderbird. In his midtown Tucson apartment, the 49-year-old is literally watched over by a large collection of colorful plastic superhero action figures. He says there's a reason for that. You don't want to be the cautionary tale at family picnics, even though I am. You don't want it. So I surround myself with the Hulk and, you know, I have Superman over there and Thor and the X-Men up there. And it's a, it's a constant reminder of when I feel weak to not be weak. As long as Native kids need heroes, Proudstar says he will keep trying to tell their stories. And after all these years, that is heroic in itself. This is Bryn Baylor for Arizona Spotlight. In 1976, people around the world marveled at Bruce Jenner, Edwin Moses, and Nadia Comaneci as they set records at the Olympic Summer Games in Montreal, Canada. I was seven years old and living in Texas, and although I didn't usually care much for sports, I thought I had found something magical watching those games with my grandparents. The experience turned me into a lifelong fan of Olympic competition and ideals. Right now, a young man who studied and swam at the University of Arizona is attending his first Olympics, representing his home nation of South Africa. Michael Mayer has been swimming competitively for 10 years and earned three All-American titles. I spoke with him a few days after his team arrived at the Olympic Village in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, where Mayer begins the nerve-wracking wait until his first shot at Olympic gold. It's kind of very hard to put into words, but it's absolutely amazing. I mean, just being in the village and being around this vibe, it really makes makes everything worth it, all the hard practices and stuff. So it's, it's definitely very rewarding to be able to experience this. How would you describe the excitement level among your teammates? A lot of nerves, but a lot of excitement. I think a lot of these athletes have been dreaming of this their whole life. So you can tell that everyone's taking it very seriously, but trying to take it all in at the same time. While you're there in the village, do you have time to meet and socialize with athletes from other countries? Oh, yes, definitely. I think it's a big place to see the athletes and how they, uh, what they do day to day. I mean, we see a lot of the famous tennis players coming to the dining hall, sitting down, just eating like regular people. So it's nice <laughs> to be able to be around that environment, especially. What kind of things do they provide for you to do while you're, you're in this heightened state of anticipation all week? Um, I mean, I actually just came from the Athletes' Lounge, which is kind of like a, a chilling area where there's TV games, uh, ping pong, snooker and stuff. So they, they definitely are places like that. Tell our listeners what your connection to South Africa is. Obviously, I can tell from your accent you're a native. I've lived in South Africa most of my life. I just came to America to study. I studied, um, obviously, at the University of Arizona. I ultimately knew if I was on any international team, it would probably be South Africa, having lived the majority of my life there and having known most of the swimmers there. 
I kind of knew in the back of my mind that I would always represent South Africa. It was just a huge part of my life. What is your main event as a swimmer? My main event is the 400 individual medley, um, which is on the first day of the Olympics. The success of Michael Phelps and uh, Ryan Lochte and other swimmers has helped to raise the profile of that sport here in the U.S. Are you going to be competing against either of those guys? Ryan Lochte actually tried out for that event and missed, so he actually missed out on my event this year. But I'll, I'll be racing, obviously, the top guys there. But Phelps as well, he's not either swimming that event. As they get a bit older, this event tends to grow with the younger swimmers. Would you say that speed or endurance is more important? Oh, definitely endurance. Um, my training over the last summer, my training has just been how much I can boost my endurance because I don't need that much speed. I just obviously need to keep going, keep the splits even throughout the race. Has there been any special type of preparation for you in advance to going to Rio? Uh, was your team given any sort of special uh, outlines about health or safety? Well, our preparation actually started in Europe. We trained there. We trained and raced there for about a month, and then we we moved to Florida and we trained there for about a month before coming to Brazil. So there has been a build, a big uh, build up. In terms of guidelines, I mean, we were obviously told about certain precautions we had to take with Zika and just drinking bottled water, etc. So there has been a few things we have to kind of follow. I mean, for me, I've taken all the precautions I can. Uh, I have all the sprays, bangles, um, set up my room so that. I can prevent stuff like that. They have told us, you know, be the best prepared you can. That's all I could have done right now. You said sprays, and then you said something else I couldn't quite hear. Wait, what was the other level of protection you mentioned? I'm wearing bangles, so just like mosquito repellent bangles. Um, oh, okay, right. Just moisturizer, like washing with the soap, just to kind of do everything I can. Have you had a chance to swim in the water you'll be competing in yet? Uh, yeah, I swam in the main pool. Uh, it's a very, very nice pool. It was kind of breathtaking to see. You know, I got goosebumps walking in. So I uh, definitely kind of took my breath away. So I'm really excited to be able to race in it. Tell us about at least one important part of your pre-race ritual. How do you get ready to put yourself in that competitive mindset? I think the key is just to realize it's just another swim meet and not to kind of um, suck yourself out. So I kind of just take this like any other race and kind of not go for a specific time, but just race. I feel like that works best for me. If I focus too much on a time, I kind of get distracted. So I'm just going to let the training take over, uh, which is usually what, I, usually what happens with me. Was there a, a particular moment when you were young that you decided that competitive swimming was for you? Definitely a turning point for me was seeing Michael Phelps in Athens, watching every one of those races kind of inspired me to do the same thing. So that was definitely a point where I realized, hey, I want to be there. I want to be able to put myself in the position where I can race the top guys in the world and maybe go for a medal. That was Michael Mayer, who spells his last name M-E-I-E-R. He's scheduled to swim for his home nation of South Africa in the 400-meter medley on Saturday at the 2016 Summer Olympic Games in Rio. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM radio studio. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood, with assistance from Isaac Rodriguez. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Mm-hmm.